before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of The Endgame featuring Bill Fleckenstein and our very special guest, Dan Oliver. Dan is the founder of Myrmican Capital, a precious metals-focused fund, and he's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Golden Tears, A History of Credit Bubbles. In this remarkable conversation, Dan takes us back to 18th century France for a history lesson about John Law, the Mississippi Company, and how a central bank-created credit bubble got out of control setting the stage for a disastrous collapse that rippled right across Europe. With that as a backdrop, what follows is a wonderful assessment of where we stand today and the lessons thousands of years of history can teach us about our likely future. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, and The Narrative Game, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all podcasts, while members of the Silver Tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and want more high-quality content like it, please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, please enjoy the show. Dan, welcome to the Endgame. It's been a long time, my friend. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, great. Thanks for having me back. Good to good have me. It's a, and you gentlemen know each other already well, so we don't need to waste any time with introductions, I'm delighted to say. <laughs> yeah, Grant, the first time I met, I was moving apartments in New York City, and I've just left New York City to go to Connecticut. Uh, things uh, oh. <laughs> field as this New York collapses, you know, from <laughs> where people are, are, are escaping. So I made my own escape. I suspect the subject of collapse will come up at some point in the next hour or so. <laughs> yeah. Whereabouts in Connecticut have you moved to, Dan? Well, I'm not sure I want to say, but an hour north. <laughs> they're, okay. they're coming from you at some point. All right. So, we, all right. I, I've got a pretty idea which county in, but I won't say anything. <laughs> Look, uh, Dan, I've been waiting for your book for years. You've been writing a book called Golden Tears, which I've read the prologue to several times. I read it again in preparation for this conversation. And it's just, it's a masterful piece of work that if it doesn't get everybody salivating to read the rest of the book, I'd be amazed. But just give us the idea behind the book, what it's designed to do. And then I want to talk as a background for this conversation about that prologue, if I can. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so credit bubbles writ large are part of human society. You can trace the things back to, to ancient Rome, ancient Greece. There were 23 recorded debt cancellations in Mesopotamia. So this is nothing new. What, what I think modernity did have something new happen is, is the whole business cycle with credit debasement. There's, in, in the old days, in the Roman times, but they would just simply debase the currency. So they had a silver coin and it became ever, ever more tin and prices went, went higher and, and bad things happened. But, but the whole spectacle of speculation and overinvestment and, and, and all the details that, that we, we can see more recently, I, I think that the first real modern credit bubble of where we would recognize all the things we lived through occurred in France in the early 18th century. And, and the background was that uh, Louis XIV, the, the, the Sun King, through wars and, and overspending on himself, you know, Versailles is wonderful to visit, but you have to understand a bankrupt in France 
building, and that's why it's so magnificent. Uh, when, when he died in the early uh, 18th century, he was completely bankrupt, and, and the state had an enormous debt owed to important people, right? You, you couldn't just, um, you, know, you could default on it, but then you were defaulting right. all, all the nobles and everyone else who was important to society, so there was great resistance to that. Th- there was a debate in France at the time uh, when the when the uh, the new king was, I think, six years old. So there was a, a regent who, who was running running the joint, and and uh, and the the, the Duke uh, Saint Simon wanted to default on the debt, and the regent said, "No, no, uh, there's there's another way." I had this this guy I used to play guard, cards with John Law, Scotsman, who was a math genius who's got a better idea. So, so John Law showed up and it was the kind of reform he'd actually presented. John Law had presented his, his ideas to Louis XIV, who had rejected them out of hand. But but now France was completely prostrate and and and, and had nowhere to turn. And, and John Law's idea basically was that you didn't need gold and silver to, to back your, your your currency system. You could do it with, with paper. And, and this was a, a fairly, a, a very novel idea. And, and the first stages of it, I think this is an important point, weren't so revolutionary. What 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 John Law wanted to do was create a. What he did do was create a private bank, and and, and the notable people of France, including the region uh, himself, deposited their gold and silver in his bank, and the bank issued out certificates representing that gold and silver. And, and the reason why this was so innovative is because it was not backed by the sovereign. The, the French livre, which is the sovereign currency, had had its value changed hundreds of times over the, the previous couple of centuries. Because the price of gold and silver themselves, the ratio had changed, the, the, the overall price had changed, so they, they would constantly change. And of course, they did it to default on their debt slowly. Well, well, John Law, a private bank, couldn't do that. He, he had to actually fulfill his contract and return the amount of gold and silver that, that was deposited. And so the market trusted his notes much more so than it trusted the, the sovereign notes. And so his notes began to circulate uh, around France uh, more so than the official currency because it was so solid back. And of course, your viewers will will hear echoes of that in current free market of today's, right? People who want to set up their own private banks and have their own cryptocurrencies backed by gold or repair backed by gold. I think Texas has a new yeah. depository. And of course, the government's very jealous of their of their seniors power we haven't gotten the stage where private money can circulate legally but but we'll get there the same way france got there uh, and, and so that was the first thing he did which again was 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 very clever and and uh based soundly on sound principles of banking and liquidity the second thing he did um which is a little more controversial in the hard money circles but i, I i'm i'm a proponent of what he did and that was he, he said look um for companies, and obviously the economy was less developed than, than it is now, but but you still had supply chains. So when you go buy something in a store, the, the storekeeper didn't make it. He bought it from someone else, and usually there's a chain of, of suppliers. So uh, when you buy bread, the, the very simple example is the, the, the farmer grows the wheat, the miller turns in the flour and the baker bakes it and sells it to the consumer. So that's a very simple supply chain. And, and the way it works is, and still works today, we worked then, it's always worked this way, that when an intermediate manufacturer sells his good to the next guy in the chain, that guy says, I'll pay you in 30 days. And the reason he does it is because he's going to sell that product to get the working capital to, to pay back the, the, the order he just made. And, and so before the bank came along, people would buy and sell these so-called commercial bills in the market. They, they circulate on their own. And so John Law said, look, I will buy them. So I'll, I'll create new money. You know, this isn't fiat money. It's money backed by these commercial invoices. 
And the reason I think this was not inflationary, unlike some people in the hard money circles, is because this represented uh, transactions that had already occurred. And the only remaining risk was settlement, of which there was almost no risk because these, were, these weren't cars or buildings. These were like bread and, and clothes and then fast-moving consumer goods, which of which there's a constant uh, consumption. People don't just stop eating bread one day. It's, it's something that, that keeps going. And, and the bank discounted the value of these bills for the risk of default and also the time value of money. So it really was um, um, just reflecting liquidity, something that already happened and creating money against that. And again, he, he did this, um, and these notes were very successful. In fact, so successful that people stopped using the official currency of France. And the regent made his notes um, uh, a legal tender. So you could use John Law's private notes to pay your taxes and, and your bills uh, due to the state, which were numerous. Right? I mean, you know, this time in France, like, like today, there were state monopolies and there were taxes, everything you did. So, so the, you know, people were always paying money to the state, and you could use John Law's notes. Once, once that happened, in, in my view, it opened up a, a new avenue for a third way to issue currency. Again, the first way was against gold and silver. The second way was against commercial invoices, commercial bills. And the third way was this. Uh, John Law set up a second company, which became known as the Mississippi Company. And that company uh, bought the monopoly uh, for the right to trade with the Mississippi Territory that France had in, in the Americas. People, you may, I don't know how well history is taught today, but France owned about a third of the United States, the central third, and that was this territory. Uh, it was completely undeveloped, uh, uh, full of uh, uh, um, residents who didn't appreciate the, the new arrivals uh, and disease and, and things like that. So it actually had no value. But but what John Law did was he, he raised money to populate this area and develop it. And, and the plan was to take uh, France's poor and criminals and, and send them over there, a bit like Australia, and, and, and develop it. So, so he went out and raised money in an equity offering for this new company. And he also did something which, to me, was, uh, was the sea change, the part worth waiting for this conversation. And that is, he had his bank print up money and go buy these shares in the market because he thought they were too low. And, and that boosted the share price of Mississippi Company. And the, and the first people who subscribed to this offering made a lot of money. And what happened next, which, which again, we're now we're getting into the period of modernity, everyone will recognize, um, once the share price started going higher, John Law's bank would, would accept that as collateral, shares as collateral to lend more money. So you could take your shares, give it to the bank, borrow more money, use that money to buy more shares, have the share price go up. Now you're more collateralized and you can borrow more money. So, so it became this feedback group of shares going higher. And as, if I recall, the shares went from around uh, $200, uh, 200 leave per, per share to about 10,000 over the next uh, um, uh, three years. And people traded the options, uh, uh, futures, there, there, were, there, were, there were warrants that were existing. So the whole panoply of what we understand as modern finance uh, developed ar around these shares and obviously uh, gains of that magnitude, which, which the world had never seen before in, in this organized fashion, attracted capital throughout throughout Europe, and speculation began to broaden to, for example, coaches going to France from other countries. And, and noblemen in other places would, would, would sell their assets for money, jump in a coach, which would have become extremely expensive, obviously, come to France, deposit it at, the, at John Law's bank, get money uh, to, go, to go buy shares. And there are all kinds of amusing stories like 
uh, a nobleman uh, trying to win the hand of John Law's daughter, who I think was eight at the time, <laughs> because he'd become the richest man of France, the second richest man after, after the region. So, uh, but but more to the point, it's set again, it's set in in motion the the standard picture of what I view as a credit bubble, which is um, that the bank finances an asset which increases its price. Full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.